Thank you for listening to City Awakening Podcast. City Awakening is a gospel-centered church located in East Orlando that plants new churches, striving to be a multicultural, multi-generational church. For more information about City Awakening, follow us on social media or visit www.cityawakening.org. Well, my name is Lewis. I'm lead pastor here at City Awakening. Welcome to those of you who are here, who are here on site. And to those of you watching online, we welcome you also. Uh, at this time, I want to go ahead and dismiss our children at Children's Church. So if you didn't get a chance to check your child in, please see our children's ministry leaders in the back, and they would be more than happy to assist you with that. Today, we are continuing our teaching series that we've been doing called The Story, where we are going through the biblical narrative from the very beginning in Genesis 1 to the last amen in Revelation 22. And today we're going to be taking a look at the impactful life of Jesus. And we're going to talk, we're going to talk about the impactful life, life of Jesus in a time in history where Jesus tells his disciples to live an impactful life like him. Now this is a, a question that everybody at some point in their life will ask. They'll ask of themselves this. You know, what's my purpose? What's my purpose in life? Why am I here? How can I make an impact in this world with this short life that I'm living? Usually that question starts maybe when we're in high school and we have to start thinking about maybe our future career or maybe our future college or vocational degree program that we have to pursue. And then some of us, when we graduate from high school, maybe we enter that career, we enter that degree program, we start to realize, you know, I don't really like this career. I don't really like the degree program that I'm in. And so then we switch careers and we switch degree programs. I also know people who... You know, later on in life, they feel like they're stuck because they don't like the career that they're in or they don't like the degree that they chose, but they've already invested so many years into their career that it's time for them to collect a, a pension. And so they got to just work. They just got to finish it out to be able to collect that pension. Or they just don't even know where to begin in the start of a new career. And so they feel stuck. They're like, I don't like this career. I don't like the degree that I chose, but I put so much time into it. I don't even know what I would do if I were to leave right now. So they feel stuck. My point is, is that at some point in all of our lives, we all ask that question where it's like, you know, what's my purpose in life? Why am I here? How can I make an impact with this short life that I'm living? And so what about you? What about you? What do you think your purpose is? Do you want to have an impact? You want to have an impact on your family's life. Do you want to have an impact on the life of your, your, maybe your coworkers, your friends, your classmates, the people in your city and neighborhood? Do you want to have an impact on people's lives? I believe that is true. I believe that's true for skeptics, and I believe it's true for believers. And so today, we're going to see Jesus. He's going to teach us what it looks like for us to have an impactful life like him. All right, so if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn them over to Matthew chapter 16. If you're new to your Bible, you can open it up to the middle. Keep turning to the right. You'll find the Gospel of Matthew there. We'll also have the words on the screen for you. But we'll be in Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 to 24 today. And for those of you taking notes, the title of today's message is The Impactful Life of Jesus. And the big idea of the message is this. The Christian life is meant to be impactful, not comfortable. All right, the Christian life is meant to be impactful, not comfortable. 
And we'll understand that more as we study today's text. All right, just to give you a quick context here, uh, we've been studying the life of Jesus for the past few weeks, and some of the things we've looked into is the happy life of Jesus, the great power of Jesus, and the compassionate heart of Jesus. Well, today we're going to look at the impactful life of Jesus, the missional heart of Jesus. And in Matthew chapter 16, Jesus is telling his disciples his plan to build his church, his plan to advance the kingdom of heaven here on earth. And so he's telling his disciples and us what it looks like to live an impactful life like him in regards to even building the church and advancing the kingdom of heaven. So let's check it out. Here we go. Matthew chapter 16, verse 13 says this. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But you, he asked them, who do you say that I am? It's a very fitting question considering that they had just entered into Caesarea Philippi. Because Caesarea was known as the central place, one of the central places of worship for the Greco-Roman people. In fact, they had a huge rock wall that was there that the Romans ended up carving into various different temples, numerous temples for the people to worship numerous gods in. If you could picture it, it would be kind of like almost, almost like a, a temple strip mall, right? Where it was like, you know, a bunch of shops, right? But a bunch of temples where people could just worship whatever god they wanted to worship at that time. The newest temple that they had built during the lifetime of Jesus here that he enters in there is a, is a temple for the worship of Caesar. And on it, there's the inscription that says, King of Kings, Lord of Lords, because that's how Caesar referred to himself as. Some scholars believe that it's very, very possible that Jesus has his disciples there in Caesarea looking at this rock wall of pagan worship and pagan temples when he asks them this question. So he's there facing the, the rock wall. He sees all these different temples, all these different gods that the people are worshiping. And he says to his disciples, who do you say that I am? See all these, these temples? You see all these gods that the people are worshiping? Who do you say that I am? And I always find that to be a very interesting question. Because if you think about it, that is a question that people are still asking in our culture today. I mean, who was Jesus Christ? That is a question that never seems to go away. I mean, it seems like every year, at least once a year, I see some sort of an article that is addressing an identity question about Jesus. There's some sort of an article that is asking the question, who is Jesus Christ? I mean, I see it from sources like Time Mag Magazine, Newsweek, or the New York Times, or, or there's going to be some sort of a documentary on the History Channel that's going to be covering this topic. It happens every year. Why? Why is it that every year and every generation, this question keeps reoccurring where people are asking, who is Jesus Christ nearly 2,000 years after he lived? I mean, think about it, right? Nobody's still asking who Muhammad was. Nobody's still asking who Gandhi was. Nobody's still asking who Siddhartha Gautama Buddha was. And nobody's going to be asking who you and I are nearly 2,000 years later after we're gone. You know, I don't care how much, you know, how big your 401k was, you know, is. I, I don't care how big your entourage is or how much usher-like swag you think you have. Nobody is going to be asking who you are 2,000 years after you're gone. You know why? Because we know who you are. I know who you are. You know who I am. Just like Muhammad, just like Gandhi, just like Buddha, you and I, we're all just humans, right? We're all just, 
Nobody's questioning that. Yet every year, in every generation, people are continually asking, who is Jesus Christ? The fact that we are still asking that question every year and every generation should tell you that there's just something uniquely different about the identity of Jesus compared to everybody else in human history. The reason Jesus is standing there with his disciples and asking them this question, who do you say that I am? is because he wants them to know that his identity is uniquely different than all the Greco-Roman gods that the people are worshiping. It's different than Caesar, different than everybody else in human history. He says, who do you say that I am? Again, verse 15, but you, he asked them, who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Jesus responded, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you. But my Father in heaven... Peter says he's the Messiah, meaning he is the long-awaited Savior that Israel has been waiting for. He's the Messiah, the Savior, the living God. And if you notice, does Jesus correct him? Jesus doesn't correct him. Jesus doesn't rebuke him, right? Jesus doesn't correct Peter's claim. He affirms Peter's claim. He affirms that he is indeed the Messiah, the Savior, the living God, which is exactly why every generation is asking who Jesus is. It makes sense. Why? It's because every, the reason every generation is asking who Jesus is is because the salvation of every generation is dependent upon who he is. The reason every generation is asking who Jesus is is because the salvation of every generation is dependent upon his name. It's dependent upon the belief that Peter has here that Jesus is the Messiah, the Savior, the living God. And so the Lord is still allowing that question to float around, maybe even for some of you who are skeptics. So salvation is dependent upon who we believe Jesus is and what we believe Jesus did for our lives. Again, verse 17, Jesus responded, blessed are, you, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. So as Jesus is looking at the rock-faced wall of all these different temples and, and, and pagan gods that they're worshiping in Caesarea, he says to Peter, he says, Peter, I'm, I am not going to build my church on the rock of pagan temples. I'm not going to build my church on the rock of, of pagan gods. The church I'm building is going to be on a different rock. I'm going to build my church on this rock. Scholars say that that this rock, when Jesus says that, um, he's, he could be meaning one of three things. Either he's talking about Peter there, or he's talking about Peter's confession of faith that Jesus is the Messiah, or he's talking about um, Jesus' teachings, the rock of Jesus' teachings. But history has shown us that Jesus is really going to build his church through all three of those things. He's going to build his church through Peter. He's going to build his church through the claim that he is the Messiah, the Savior, the living God. And he is going to build his church through his teachings, which are going to be recorded accurately by the apostles and put in the Bible. History has also shown us that he's going to build his church through future disciples like us like those of us who are believers. Ephesians 2 captures it very well. In Ephesians 2, chapter 20, verses 22, it says this, the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. In him, the whole building being put together grows in, into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you are also being built together. Jesus is the cornerstone. He is the primary rock upon which the church is built. 
Without Jesus, without the cornerstone, the entire building of the church collapses, falls apart. Simply put, what Jesus is doing here is he is predicting that he is going to grow the church. He is going to grow a community of believers that not even the gates of Hades can overcome. The gates of Hades are the gates of hell. He's saying that he is going to build the church, build a community of believers that not even the gates of hell are going to be able to overcome. And this has always been fascinating to me as well because, you know, guess what? Is Jesus right? Come on, church, was he right? Absolutely he was right. You know why? Because the church is still standing. I mean, here we are over 2,000 years later after Jesus says it, and the church is still standing. Despite all the persecution, you really study up on history, you should see that this movement of Christianity that Jesus predicted would happen, shouldn't have happened because they're constantly trying to squash it, try, constantly trying to kill Christianity throughout history all across the world, even today. And yet the church is still standing despite all the persecution that the church has experienced over the years, showing that what Jesus said was going to happen has happened. It reminds me of a quote, a 19th century quote from a French soldier. H.L. Hastings, he recorded the quote, is a 19th century quote from a French soldier who was trying to convince the French king to rescind his orders to persecute the church. So this soldier is trying to convince his French king, hey, you got to rescind those orders, and here's why. This is a battle we can't win. He says, he says, sire, the church of God is an anvil that has worn out many hammers. You know what an anvil is? It's that flat iron block that a blacksmith will, will hammer metal on. He says the church is like that. King, you, you got to rescind these orders. This is a battle we can't win. We're going to lose this fight because the church is like an anvil that has worn out many hammers. People have tried persecuting the church. They've tried to distort, destroy it. But historically, we know that the church can't be destroyed. City Awakening, the church 2,000 years later is still standing. It's still growing, still gathering people, equipping people, and sending people. The church cannot be destroyed. The gates of hell can never overcome it. Can't overcome it. You can clap. Jesus said, I'm going to build a church, and I'm going to build a community of believers in which I am the cornerstone that will set it in motion, and not even the gates of hell will overcome it. I'm going to say more about that in just a minute. Again, verse 18, on this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth will have been bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will have been loosed in heaven. Jesus is saying that the apostles, Peter and the apostles, are going to accurately, accurately record his teachings. They're going to accurately record the way to heaven. The Bible consists of that recording of his teachings, of that way to get into heaven, the keys to heaven, which is the gospel. See, the gospel is the key that unlocks the door to heaven. What is the gospel? The gospel message is that Jesus is our Messiah. He is our Savior. He is our Lord, like Peter claimed. He is God incarnate, God in the flesh, who came in. He put on flesh. He came in as well, put on flesh, fully human, fully divine, to live, to die, and to rise again for the forgiveness of our sins. The gospel is that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Jesus says those who believe in that gospel message, he will give the keys to heaven to. He will give us the keys that will unlock the doors of heaven. He said, you believe in that message here on earth, he will give you the keys that will unlock the door to heaven. 
Okay? The gospel is the key that unlocks the door to heaven. Verse 20, then he gave the disciples orders to tell no one that he was the Messiah. Why would he do that? Wait a minute, we got this great message and you're telling us not now to go share that? You got the keys to heaven, you don't want us to share that? What Jesus is saying is just not yet. And the reason why he's saying not yet is because if they start going around now saying that Jesus is the Messiah, that he is the living God, then it's going to advance the timeline of the crucifixion. And Jesus is saying, no, no, not yet because I still have work to do. I still have ministry to do. And if they were to go around and start saying that Jesus is the Messiah, the Lord, and all that, then what's going to happen is the Jews are going to come in and they're going to crucify him too soon. He says, let me come to do the work that I'm to do here. And once I'm done with that, then we'll start spreading that news. So it's not yet. Verse 21, from then on, Jesus began to point out to the disciples that it was necessary for him to go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders, chief priests, and scribes, be killed and be raised the third day. That's the gospel. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Oh no, Lord, this will never happen to you. Jesus turned and told Peter, get behind me, Satan. It's a powerful rebuke. You know, when I read that, I'm sitting there, I'm kind of like, oh man, that's kind of like me sometimes, you know. <laughs> Have a good day, you know, I'm full of faith, and another day, and God's like, dude, what are you doing? Come on, man, wake up, right? Jesus corrects Peter in this moment. The reason why he's saying this to Peter is because Peter is trying to prevent him from going to the cross. See, Jesus has a different understanding than Jesus does of what the Messiah was supposed to come to do. Peter is viewing the Messiah as somebody who's supposed to come as a conquering warrior, not as a suffering savior. And so he tries to correct Jesus, but Jesus ends up correcting him. Jesus corrects him, and I love that part of the text because what we see is, is we kind of see the rise and the fall of Peter, and this isn't the last time we would see that, right? We see, we see Peter in one moment, you know, being praised and celebrated by Jesus, right? But then the next moment, he's being rebuked by Jesus. You know, in one moment, he, he's sitting there, and he's, he's all like, oh, yeah. He's like, hey, did you all hear that? Hmm? John, did you hear that one? Jesus praised me, didn't he? I think he might have called me the rock, you know? Dwayne Johnson ain't the rock, bro. He's a pebble compared to me. I'm the first real rock. Did you hear it? Feels good, doesn't it? And then Jesus comes in and he says, hey, man, get behind me, Satan. Very humbling moment for Peter. But here's what I love about the Bible. So the Bible is very honest and very trustworthy about the success and the failures of the disciples. I mean, you look at this from Old to New Testament. The Bible does not hide the failures of its leaders, of some of the, some of the great people of faith, even revealing that they weren't perfect. There's only one perfect Savior, and that's Jesus. But the Bible's not afraid of that, and this is unique from a first-century um, history literature perspective. See, because in first-century literature, what you did was if you wanted to start a movement, what you wrote about your successes, not your failures. In fact, in first century literature period, if somebody's writing a biography about something or whatever, they always wrote about the king's successes, not their failures, because they wanted to boast them up. 
And so this is unique compared to first century literature that they're actually being open and honest about, hey, uh, look at the rise and fall of some of our leaders, Abram, right? Moses, you've got David, Old Testament. You got the disciples here, which should go, go and tell us that the Bible is very honest, very trustworthy, and very true. The Bible is true. It could be trusted because it always tells the truth, even about the failures that have taken place through its leaders. It has nothing to hide, nothing to fear. Again, verse 23, Jesus turned and told Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me because you're not thinking about God's concerns, but human concerns. Then Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. I'll come back to that phrase in just a minute, the take up my cross and follow him. We'll come back to that in just a minute, okay? So for now, let me just share with us three things that I think we're learning here in this text. I think it's three things that Jesus is teaching us when it comes to living an impactful life like him. And then we'll come back to that phrase in a minute. The first one is this, an impactful life offers a different message. An impactful life offers a different message than the culture's message. Here's why I say that. Because remember, Jesus affirms Peter's claim that Jesus is the Messiah, the Savior, the living God. And Jesus affirms that claim while he is living in a culture that believes in religious plurality. Multiple temples, multiple gods, believe whatever you want to believe, worship whoever you want to worship, it's okay. Jesus affirms this claim while he is living in a city where the people actually said that you can worship whoever you want to, but you just don't say that your God is the only God to worship. Your God is the only way. You can do that, then you have the freedom to worship whatever God you want. Jesus comes in and he says to Peter, he says, no, no, Peter. He says to himself, no, no. I'm not building my church on that religious plurality culture message. I'm building my church on the message, the different unique message that I'm the Messiah, the Savior, the living God. That I am not just one of many ways. I am the way. I'm the only way. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I'm the only one who holds the keys to the kingdom of heaven. And anybody who believes in that message, I will pass my keys on to Jesus could have very easily just went with the culture. He could have very easily just went along with the, the cultural belief of religious plurality, but he doesn't do that. Instead, he gives a completely unique and different message than the culture that he was living in. City Awakening, you will never live an impactful life if your life and your message is no different than the people around you. You will never make an impact in people's lives if your life and your message that you're offering them is no different than the, than the life and the message they're already living. You'll never stand out because your life is just like theirs. Your message is no different than theirs. So why would they care? Why would they say, no, who, I, you know, uh, yeah, why, why, you know, this person, they're, they're just as hopeless as I am. You know, so I don't care about that message, right? But if we live a life that is different, if we, if we have a message that is different than the cultures, then the culture is going to see that you are, why does is, why is that person still have hope even though they're going through this mess in their life? Why are they still singing when they're still filled with sadness? See, sparks curiosity. Well, why is their life there? What do they have that I just am missing in life? You will never 
have an impact on people's life if your life and your message is no different than theirs. You have to offer them a life and a message that's different. If you want to make an impact on people's lives, you've got to offer them a life and a message that is different than the life and message they're already living. Jesus says that that starts with believing that he is your Messiah, your Savior, your living God. He says, if you can believe that message, then not only will I transform your life, but I will, you will be welcomed into such an impactful movement through the church that not even the gates of hell will be able to overcome it. Okay, it starts with us believing in the message of Christ, which is a unique de- message than the, the unchurched, de-churched culture that we're living in. I'll give you some stats to prove how much of a minority we actually are in our faith in believing who Jesus is and what Jesus has done in just a minute. Verse, or number two, an impactful life pushes back darkness. An impactful life pushes back darkness in our families, in our workplaces, in our schools, in our cities, in our neighborhoods. Jesus says that I'm going to build the church. I'm going to build a community of believers that's going to be so impactful that not even the gates of hell can overcome it. Now, a lot of times, Christians, we, we misinterpret that. We think what Jesus is saying there is that he is, you know, he's going to protect us from Satan's attacks. You know? So you know, you don't have, we don't have to worry about Satan. We don't have to worry about his, his attacks you know, because Jesus is going to protect us. And, and the gates of hell you know, can't over, ever overcome us. You know? So don't worry about Satan. Don't worry. Gates of hell won't ever overcome. That's not what Jesus is saying there. This isn't about the gates of hell attacking us. This is about us attacking the gates of hell. This isn't about the gates of hell fighting us. This is about us taking the fight to the gates of hell. Think about it for a second, okay? A gate isn't an offensive weapon. It's a defensive weapon, right? If you're going to battle, you don't say, oh, let me grab my gate, right? Hey, we're going off to war. We're going to go to battle. Let me grab my gate, right? No, you don't shank somebody with a gate. You shank them with your sword, correct? Why? Because the gate isn't an offensive weapon. It's a defensive weapon. So what Jesus is saying is, is he says, you as believers, those of you who are believers, you need to go on the offense. You need to go take the fight to the gates of hell instead of letting hell take the fight to you. You need to go and push back darkness in your life. You need to push back darkness in your family's life. You need to push back darkness in your workplace, your school, in your city, in your neighborhoods. We need to go on the offense. I was just talking with a buddy of mine this past week, and uh, he's a very good friend of mine. Um, he's a Christian. He's still, um, still young in his faith, and so you know, hasn't really developed his biblical knowledge yet or his theology yet, but, but he is growing tremendously in that. We probably talk maybe once a week. You know, he doesn't live here in, in, in our area, uh, but we talk probably once a week. He's a great football coach. Uh, you know, I'm uh, some of y'all know, I mean, I coach tackle football. Well, he, he actually, you know, at one point was coaching tackle football as well, and he took his team to a state championship here in Florida. And so I was talking with him, kind of offensive, defensive language, because he came to me and he was telling me um, this past week, he's like, man, he's like, uh, uh, you know, I'm having conversations with some of my coworkers, and, and, you know, they're skeptics, and they started challenging my faith, and I just, I didn't know how to respond to certain things. You know, so I kind of talked him through some of that. And, uh, and I told him, I was like, listen, man, um, one thing you need to realize is uh, you need to go on offense sometimes. See that? I mean, he, he gets that. He can speak that language because he's a great football coach. And I said, sometimes as a Christian, you need to go on offense. Why? Because a lot of times, skeptics put Christians on defense all the time. A lot of times, skeptics are the one on offense. 
drilling questions, challenging the faith of, of a believer, and the believer's always taking steps back, trying to, you know, just kind of backpedaling all the time, you know, just kind of, well, you know, I, I, don't, I don't know how to answer that or whatever, you know, and it's just this, always on defense, having to defend your faith, which he was having to do, and I'm always like, listen, man, sometimes you've got to go on offense. So regarding something they were talking about, I was like, I'll give you an example of that. Okay, when it comes to the existence of God, as you guys were discussing and all that, when it comes to the existence of God, okay, so go on offense. Tell them, say, provide me with an alternate explanation for how life began. See, that's an offensive question. Okay, if you're saying God doesn't exist, then give me an alternate explanation that is logical and that is reasonable for me to believe. Well, okay, well, it started with matter. I mean, some of y'all know that I was a skeptic, and so, like, I know how some of this goes, right? And, and so, oh, well, it began with matter and a big bang and a big explosion, and then that set everything into motion, which, which started like, okay, so where did matter come from? Where did the big, who, who started the big bang? Where did matter come from? Well, it always existed. So you're saying it's infinite? How is that any different than a Christian saying that God is infinite? So now you're saying that there is infinite matter, that there is this infinite thing that existed somehow, don't know where it came from, but it was infinite, always existed, and that created life. Okay, well, a Christian is saying that you're talking about something that's eternal and infinite. Well, so is God. So why is that different? Okay, in fact, I'm going to push it just a little bit forward. I'll go a little bit more on offense, okay? So, okay. Um, How does something non-living matter create something that is living? How does non-life create life? How does non-life breathe in? How does this wall that is not living all of a sudden create something that's living? See, we believe that God is living. Both of us believe. Okay, so two claims on the table. One is um, always, both of them always existed, supposedly, right? Okay, so, so then this one, though, is a living being. God is a living being. So I can, that's very plausible explanation for me because he's a living God who can create life, because life can create more life. But something that is not living can't create something that's living, which is the more plausible explanation. See, offense, offense, just one example. Here's what Jesus is saying in this text. He is saying that we need to start going on offense when it comes to pushing back darkness. That's what he's saying. Not sitting back, in our comfortable Christian bubbles, we need to go on offense. Taking the fight to the gates of hell instead of letting hell take the fight to us. We need to push back darkness maybe in our marriages. Maybe in our parenting. Maybe parents, or or, or, I'm sorry, um, children pushing back darkness in the way you speak to your parents. We need to push back darkness in our workplaces. I get it. You may not like your job, but the Lord has you there for a purpose. Maybe he wants you to push back darkness in that workplace. Maybe he wants you to push back darkness in your school. Some of you just started school and there's darkness that happens in your school. Maybe he wants you to push back darkness in your city and your neighborhood. I'm taking a little bit longer on this because I think it's important, okay? And here's one of the reasons why it's important. A lot of people aren't aware of this, but a few, um, few years ago, you know, I did a study uh, on, on Orlando and found out that Orlando um, is, is the ninth most unchurched city in America, sixth most de-churched city in America out of 19,000 plus cities. Okay, unchurched means they don't go to church, 
de-churched means used to go to church, but they don't anymore. We are the ninth most unchurched city, sixth most de-churched city in America out of 19,000 plus cities, which means we are on the front lines of darkness in our country. A lot of people also aren't aware that Orlando is one of the worst mid-sized metropolitan cities in America when it comes to homelessness, child homelessness, human trafficking, and the list goes on. There is darkness in our so-called city beautiful. And Jesus has you here. He has me here. He has our church here for the purpose of pushing back darkness. He wants us to push back darkness in our city. You want to live an impactful life? Then help to push back the darkness in people's lives. Help to push back darkness in our city so that we could truly make this city really a city beautiful. Jesus says, if you push back darkness with the hope of the gospel message I've given you, then I will, I will create a local church, a community that will be so impactful that it will put a dent in the gates of hell. The gates of hell will not overcome it. We need to push back darkness. Last one, number three, an impactful life isn't a comfortable life. An impactful life isn't a comfortable life. We see this clearly in how Jesus responds to Peter when he corrects Peter for trying to to prevent him from going to the cross. What we see is Jesus saying, no, no, no. Peter, no, this is not about a comfortable life. You know, I mean, this is, I'm going to live a sacrificial life. I'm going to live a cross life. He's telling Peter to, to shed this comfortable mentality that he just wants to live a life of comfort. No, no, he's like, I didn't come to do that. He says, I, I came to not live a comfortable life, but to live a sacrificial life. And he, he wants his followers to live a sacrificial life too. He says, take up your crosses and follow me. Which means we need to shed the, the comfortable mindset that the Lord owes me a comfortable life, you know, and, and you know, hardly ever serving, hardly ever giving, hardly ever pushing back darkness in our city and in people's lives. No, the cross life, the impactful life is not a comfortable life. It is a sacrificial life. It is a cross life where we will sacrificially give up our time to be able to serve people, to invest in people, to shine the light into the the darkness of people's lives. The cross life is not a comfortable life. It is a sacrificial life where we will even sacrifice our money, sacrifice our wealth, financially, generously, sacrificially giving for the sake of pushing back the darkness. Sacrificially giving to the point where it even alter our lifestyle. Some of us, we, we, we give comfortably instead of sacrificially in a way. Sacrificially would be a way that, ooh, I feel this. I'm given now, and I feel that. Now I gotta, I gotta tell you, I'm not quite there yet. I wrestle often. I've been wrestling with it for years, asking the question, Lord, how much do you want me to keep versus how much you want me to give? Two different questions, right? One's pretty comfortable. The other one, eh, how much do you want me to keep in my life? Hmm. It's very comfortable for us to not serve not give to others. Very comfortable for us to not serve or give to the local churches we're a part of. But Jesus says, no, no, I'm not asking you to live a comfortable life. You want to live an impactful life? Then you, you got to live a sacrificial life, a cross life. And you know what? Jesus was the greatest example of that. What did he do? Jesus lived a sacrificial cross life. He sacrificed his time. 
to serve people. He sacrificed his wealth in heaven to live in the poverty of this world. And he sacrificed his very own life to die for our sins on the cross. Jesus gave up his very life to push back the darkness of sin and death in our lives. And then on the third day, he rose again to prove that the gates of hell, the the power of darkness, will not overcome him. He invites you and I to believe what Peter believed, to believe that he's our Messiah, our Savior, our living God. And he invites us to be a part of his impactful movement, to be a part of his local church, not date the church, you know, date the church and then move on, but to actually invest in the church, to be a part of the local church, like a marriage. I'm going to stay committed to it. I'm going to be all in on it. He invites us to take up our crosses and to follow him, to live an impactful life like him. City Awakening, this is the big idea of the message. It is that the Christian life isn't meant to be a comfortable life. It's meant to be an impactful life. We've got to remind ourselves of that because otherwise, you know, when something happens to our life, we're like, you know, Jesus, what are you doing, man? I thought of following you was going to be comfortable. Not always. The Christian life isn't meant to be a comfortable life. It's meant to be an impactful life. How's your life? Are you living a comfortable life or an impactful life? Are you living a comfortable life that isn't pushing back darkness, or are you living an impactful life that is pushing back darkness? Is your life and your message different than the life and the message of the culture that you're living in? Are you living a comfortable life in alignment and a comfortable message in alignment with the culture's message and and ways of life, or are you living an impactful life that's in alignment with Jesus to impact the culture? What can you do to push back darkness in your life, to push back darkness in your family, in your workplace, in your school, in your city, in your neighborhood? What can you do to help build the local church, to build this local church, if you believe this is the church that God has called you to, in such a way that not even the gates of hell can overpower? City Awakening, Jesus has called us to live not a comfortable life, but an impactful life. And so let us live not a comfortable life, but instead let us live a sacrificial, impactful, cross-filled life. Let us believe in the Messiah like Peter did, but take up our crosses like Jesus did. Let us take up our crosses and to live an impactful life like Jesus. Proclaiming the gospel, displaying the gospel as best we can to the community around us. City Awakening, let us pray. And then let us go put a crack in the gates of hell. Amen? Let's pray for that. Jesus, you are our cornerstone. You're the solid rock, the primary rock that set all this into motion. I pray for the skeptic, the non-believer to even chew on some of the things that we said here today, God, about why is it that your name is the only name in human history whose identity we are still questioning? 
or which is the more plausible explanation for the existence of life, that something that isn't living can create life or that you, an eternal loving God, infinite God, chose to grace us with the beauties of life. God, let them gnaw on that and receive the good news of your gospel today that you are a kind God, a loving God, our Messiah, our Savior, our living God who chose to enter into this world to set back into motion the restoration of your creation that we as, as sinful humans have disrupted because of our rebellion against you. God, we pray for the believers in the room that, Lord, we, you would start to speak to our hearts even woo us and prompt us to walk away from here today thinking about, Lord, how is it that you want us to push back darkness? How do you want me to push back darkness in the city? That we wouldn't just go through the motions of coming to church, that this would just be a comfortable, let me get in, punch my Jesus card, and then leave. No, Jesus, help to stir our hearts for the neighbor who's struggling in their home. Help stir our hearts for the friend, the coworker, whose life has fallen apart. Help stir our hearts for the student in school who is rejected and outcasted. Jesus, help put the names and the faces of the lives that you want us to be able to push back darkness in and shine the light of the hope of the gospel into them. Jesus, help us to love the few in this city so that we can love the many through your good news. We pray this in your name. Amen. Let us stand and worship Jesus.